0: This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20 and then Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 to 32. Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20 can be found on the page 1000 of the church Bibles. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him they worshipped him but some doubted On page 1175 of the Church Bibles. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you.
1: Thank you. Let's pray that God would speak to us from his word today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your presence with us and thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit Help me as I speak to speak clearly and lead into your presence. And help all of us as we hear you speak to receive your word and to be willing to listen and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, they always say about in an Anglican church, arrive early for a seat at the back. And uh, today a lot of you must have arrived early. I'm... Speaking today in the third of a series of talks about how to live securely when the world is shaking. And today I'm speaking about how we need to commit to the Master's master plan. Now I'm not going to rehash what I've said in previous talks, but I am convinced that over the coming weeks, months, and few years, Those who are following Christ are going to find it increasingly hard going. It's not new that to follow Christ you're choosing a minority path. Jesus said that. That's not something that's just come afresh upon the church in our lifetime. But I think it stands to reason that when you know that you're entering, let's say, a war zone, it's more important than ever that you understand what your purpose is And you commit to it and you're faithful to it and that's why I want to talk about committing to the purpose God has for us because be sure of it God does have a purpose you were created on purpose with a purpose now I know that I've let you into the world of Rupert before to know that on Sunday nights when my duties are over in the church one of the things that I do to unwind is to watch a very staid pedestrian program called the Antiques Roadshow and that's exactly why I like it because it is so undemanding and one of the things that very often happens in the Antiques Roadshow is that from time to time some artifact is brought in and shown to the presenters with the question what is this for what what was it designed for And they look at it, and they examine it, and they pass it around, and sometimes they just say, I've got no idea. And basically, when they've got no idea, the value of that item plummets. And so it is with you and me. If you've got no idea of the value of or or the purpose of your life, the value of your life starts to plummet. I need to give you a couple more illustrations because I can see this point hasn't quite been made well enough yet. So, suppose, suppose that someone came into your house with a violin. It might even be a Stradivarius violin. But if you lived in a culture and a country in a time where you'd never seen an orchestra, you didn't know anything about what a violin was, you might look at this thing and think, well, interesting shape, maybe it's a doorstop. And you just kind of put it down by the door. But it it doesn't reach its proper value until you know what the purpose is. It might be entertaining to have it as a doorstop or on your mantelpiece, but you're not fully appreciating it for all it's worth. Or you could take it into the human realm. You take a a great sports person, a great tennis player, Roger Federer, say, or or one of that crowd, or a, a great singer, Pavarotti, say, and if you never put Federer uh, connecting to a tennis racket, you don't discover his value. Are you, are you getting the point? Of course you are. Of course you are. It's just like that with you and me with our walk with God. And until we connect with his purpose, then we are going to be undervalued and underappreciated. So what is the purpose? Well, I think, and it's to our credit, that churches like ours are very good, at being motivated at trying to lead people to Christ. That's great, I'm I'm all for it. And we have to intentionally do this business of sharing our faith, helping people to know who Jesus is and to follow him. We call that evangelism. Not quite so sure that we're as intentional or helpful when it comes to helping to explain that's just the beginning of a journey. That is just, now a new adventure starts And we're following Christ and we need to enroll to the master's master plan and you can find that in shorthand at the very end of Matthew's gospel it was read out to you a very little while ago and it's often called the Great Commission and it comes right at the end of Matthew's gospel it says send the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go when they saw him they worshipped him And he told them, go and make disciples of all nations. Remember this? It's called the Great Commission. Now, I want to say, just to cover my tracks, really, because a lot of this talk is going to be about how we behave as disciples, but I want us to notice that it begins with worship. When they saw him, they worshipped him. It's an elementary mistake that sometimes people make to try and live out the Christian life without first coming to Christ. You and I can't be much good at being an ambassador for Christ before we have worshiped Christ. And that means, that means being still in his presence. So here's a rudimentary test. Would you be comfortable just to sit still in Jesus' presence? Because he says, the scripture says, he makes me lie down beside still waters and he restores my soul. And I don't want to spend any time on this at all. That's all I'm going to say on that subject. But I I want you to hear it's futile to rush off and try and convert the world till you've spent time in Jesus' company yourself. I remember once talking to a group of uh, people at a residential house party, and there was a man there who had just moved to a particular village in the countryside, and he'd seen uh, the local post office close, and he'd seen the pub close. He could see all the community places closing, and so he was absolutely determined that the church wouldn't close. And he told us all about his strategy for that, and this that, and the other was to happen. But there was actually one rather huge hole in his strategy was he hadn't actually yet connected with Jesus, the Lord of the church. And I I had the pleasure of actually explaining to him that it was admirable as it was if you want to see the church flourishing he'd get along a lot better if he asked the Lord of the church to help. And something marvellous happened in his life and actually he he got the point. We need to get the point. We start by worshipping. But then I want to move on And say that for good or for bad, our witness speaks as much, if not more, than our words. Now, they're not exclusive. I don't believe that you can just witness through your actions. But you can't just witness through your words either. As a friend put it to me rather too pithily, it's no good bringing the good news if you are the bad news. And that's right, isn't it? In, in my early years of being a follower of Christ, I went on many very many good courses actually on how to be an effective evangelist, how to share your faith well and pretty much at the heart of them was learning a set of doctrines being being introduced to the key facts of what it means to be a follower of christ and intentionally or otherwise, one of the rub on effects was that I began to equate more knowledge equals being more effective at sharing your faith. And then sometimes thinking, I'll never be bright enough for this. I'll, I'll never know enough for this. But you know, in the kingdom of God, it doesn't actually work out like that. It, it's, it's, it's how we live as well as what we know that matters. For, for 17 years, I lived in Cambridge, uh, a city which has too many brains. In it. You, you have more chance of bumping into a Nobel Prize winner in Cambridge than anywhere else around the world. And um, many people have not just got one degree or two degrees, they got master's degrees and goodness knows what. But after 17 years of living there, the most impactful thing that happened for me was not listening to a lecture or someone share how much cerebral knowledge they had. It was the kindness of someone an act of kindness of over five minutes that I will never forget. As it happened, the guy who was that kind is a professor in the United States and in Cambridge and does hold multiple degrees, but it was none of that. It was something very, very simple that he did that any of us could do that I'll never forget. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, watch your life and doctrine closely. So here's the big question. Because if if the master's master plan is, as I believe it is, that we should make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. First of all, that wasn't what the people of his day expected or even hoped for. After all, the God they worshiped and the God we worship, he's a God who is capable of miracles. He's a God who could part the Red Sea He was the God who could rain down plagues. They were expecting sudden deliverance. But they didn't get it. Because Jesus' way was to say, no, I'm going to invest in this little group of 12 people. I'm going to train them. They're my disciples. And in time, they will make disciples. And others will make disciples. And you and I are going to make disciples. But Paul tells us to do that you need yourself to be Christ-like. And we seem to have decided, we generally in this age, we've torn apart what God and what Paul puts together, which is belief and behavior. If you look at nearly all Paul's letters, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, nearly all of them, the first chunk is telling his recipients what they believe about what Jesus has done for them, his life, death, and resurrection. And the second half is, in the light of this, this is how you're to behave. And the two were joined together, and you just knew that if you were a follower of Christ, your behavior had to change. Now, today, that seems to be airbrushed out. We're quite happy to talk about following Jesus. Not so happy to talk about the new lifestyle that comes with it. But you will have noticed in that list from Ephesians for that reading quite how many departments of change there are. Let me just recap. It's a long list of changes of behavior. You must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander. There mustn't even be a hint of sexual immorality nor should there be obscenity or coarse joking. Now, all I'm saying is change is required. That's all I'm saying. But then I've got to admit to you, we're all change-resistant. It is one thing for me to say change is required, but quite another thing for you to want to take that on board. And I have to spend a bit of a chunk of time explaining why change is essential, or you and I are never going to be up for it. How how many of us drive a car? Yeah, quite a few. And even if you don't drive a car, you will get this illustration for sure. You who drive cars do not need me to give a lot of persuasion that from time to time you have to put fuel in your car. Whether it's petrol or Charge it on, on an electric car. You know you have to do that. So, without that, the car won't run. You're fully persuaded it has to happen. I want to persuade you that it's as necessary to be willing to change in order to be faithful to Jesus as it is to put petrol or electric charge in your car. If you're not willing to change, if I'm not even desiring change, Frankly, we're not not going to be able to live out the Christian life as God purposes. And Paul gives a number of reasons, even in this little passage to the Ephesians. Here's the first one He says, Because if you don't change, your life is not going to be worthy of Christ. Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then he lists all the desirable behavior. Now C.S. Lewis, as he customarily does, provides a very helpful illustration of the point that's being made here, so I'll share it with you. Lewis says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed to be done so you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking a house about in a way that hurts abominably, doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building, he, he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in himself. A Christian who is not changing, and I cut myself in with this, will be in denial of our calling and would indicate something is wrong. Here's a second reason why we need to change. Because through you and through me as individuals, people see the kingdom. Or not. It's painful when people say something like this, and they do. I like the look of Jesus, but I don't like the company of his followers. That ought not to be the case. And it can only be the case when we're not Christ-like enough. And if I'm not Christ-like enough, then I need to pray, Change me, Lord. Now if you've worshipped with us over a period of time you will have heard us sing a children's song which goes like this it's not a great tune and it's not very sophisticated lyrics but it packs a punch it goes like this Gonna shine from the inside out that the world may see you live in me Gonna shine, at which point all the adults look uncomfortable, but never mind. Gonna shine from the inside out, that so the world may see you live in me. Now, that's how it's meant to work. But actually, here's how it does work, sometimes. Full of grime from the inside out all the world will know, by the overflow, for the crime from the inside out, all the world will know, etc. Well, which is it? With you and with me. And the answer is from time to time, each. Which is why we need to ask the Lord to change us. And then there's a third reason why change is so important. And and it's simply for our own health's sake. Because we're all broken in some way or another. And God's in the business of making us whole. He's in the change business. It's what he does, habitually, every time someone comes to him. He changes your character, and he changes your purpose. If you want an example of this in brief, just think of what happens to Simon Peter. He was called Simon, and Jesus says, you will be called Peter. And we know that Peter is the name Cephas, which is rock, and he's talking about character. It's like we would say, you were called Sandy, your life was all over the place, and now you're called Rocky. You're totally dependable. And he says in the same breath, you were a fisherman, and now you're a fisher of men. And he says that to every single one of us who has come to Christ. He says, I know what you're like now, but you're going to be like this. I know that you thought you were living to please yourself in this department or the other, but now you're going to live to please me. That is what a follower of Christ is. Now, it's next to impossible to change someone else, isn't it? You know, you might you might have be saying to yourself, "Oh, I'll change my boss." You know, they're bad-tempered and horrid, but you know, I'll change them. And you discover it's it's really pretty hard. But there's an old joke. I kind of thought this talk was getting a bit heavy. There's an old joke about someone who turns up for a wedding rehearsal, their wedding rehearsal, and their in- the bride is incredibly nervous. So the kindly vicar tries to calm her nerves and meets her by the door. And they're walking through their paces on the Friday before the wedding, on the Saturday, and he says, look, look, I, I will look after you when the great day comes tomorrow. I'll meet you at the door. And the first thing we do is we just walk down the aisle together, that's okay, you can do that, can't, can't you? And she says, yes. He says, says, when we get to the fr- front of the end, we stand in front of the altar and you can do that, can't you? She says, yes, and then I'll give out some notices and um, we'll sing a hymn together. And she said, yes. So he said, there you are, all you've got to remember is, I'll alter hymn simple. But it isn't simple. It it just never works. But Jesus can alter you and me. That's what, did you notice, that's what the Ephesians passage was telling us. Paul was saying over and over and over again, put this off and pick this up instead. And I would say it's one of the great failures that I've seen now. I've, I've been the pastor of three different churches. So I don't think my experience is unique. I think you'd find this in every single church community. There are people who are dysfunctional, highly dysfunctional, and they, they behave really badly. And some people will throw their weight around. They will just be bullies, frankly. And why do they behave like that? because they've learned that it works to their advantage. It works. Bad behavior gets rewarded. Or it can be exactly the opposite. There are people who are so afraid of confrontation, they never confront anything. They go into their shell and they always suffer for it. There are so many types of dysfunctional behavior. But people learn it works for them. And that's one of the reasons why change is so difficult to embrace. Because God's holy lifestyle, God's Christ-like way of doing life might take you out of an established pattern that you've learnt to work for you. But God will make you feel uncomfortable. Even as I'm talking, God will make you feel uncomfortable about this pattern of behaviour and say, you know very well that's not how I behaved. You need to follow me now. And the wonderful thing is, From the scriptures I see incredible transformation is possible. If that were not so, this would just be a talk that leads to condemnation. But I can talk freely like this because I can say in the same breath, the Holy Spirit will help you and me to become what Christ wants us to become. To free us up to live the best life possible so that we can make disciples who will make disciples and make disciples. And what the scriptures tell me about change is this. It's a work done in partnership. This is not a talk about turning over a new leaf and trying a bit harder. This is a talk about asking the Holy Spirit to help us on this journey. And Paul seems insistent that it begins with a new mindset, with the renewing of your mind. It's like someone rewires you from the inside out and now you actually want you really want to let Jesus into your life to change you. Let me read a modern translation of what was read to you earlier, Ephesians four seventeen. As a follower of the Lord, I order you, says Paul, to stop living like godless people. Their minds are in the dark and they're stubborn and ignorant and have missed out on the life that comes from God. They no longer have any feelings about what is right And they're so greedy, they do all kinds of indecent things. But this isn't what you were taught about Christ. Here's the truth, and you heard about him and learned about him. You were told that your foolish desires will destroy you, and that you must give up your old way of life with all its bad habits. Let the Spirit change your way of thinking and make you into a new person. You were created to be like God, and so you must please him and be holy. And that is the battle, are you up for that? Is that something that you want to happen? Or you'd let happen? Rick Warren, preaching in one of his sermons, said it's easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. What he meant by that was if you wait till the day comes when you actually feel like being obedient to God, that day might never come. But if you just act out of sheer obedience, you will then get to see the reward of walking in God's ways. In America, there is a research institute called the George Barner Institute. And I want to read you one of George Barner's observations. I, I don't think that the way we do life is so different over here that we can say this only happens in America. Here's what he says. Our research discovered an interesting condition. On the one hand, when you ask a born again adult about their goals in life and ask them to rank a series of possibilities, personal spiritual development emerges as one of the top priorities. For instance, four out of five believers said that having a deep personal commitment to the Christian faith is a top priority for their future. On the other hand, when you ask believers to identify the single most important thing they hope to accomplish in life. Without suggesting any particular possibilities, only a small minority, 20%, mention anything directly related to the spiritual outcomes. In other words, most believers say their faith matters, but few are investing much energy in the pursuit of spiritual growth. Well, it, well it's telling. I'm just going to finish with a couple of... Um, Practical things that we can do to expedite change now that I've highlighted how important it is. I want to emphasize that the mechanism Paul talks about in change involves an exchange. In order to change, we need to conduct an exchange. You were taught, he says, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self and put on new self. And he's talking uses the image that we can all buy into of putting on clothing. And he he says, doesn't he, things like this, instead of bitterness, rage and anger and brawling and slander, be kind and compassionate to one another. You can't actually be kind and compassionate to one another by trying to put those as items of clothes on top of bitterness, rage and anger and brawling. It won't work. You actually need to put one thing down and pick up the other thing. But it's not, also, it won't work just to put those things down. Something has to fill the vacuum, always. Do an exchange. So an attentive listener might say to me at this point, Rupert, so you've mentioned the Holy Spirit. You've mentioned a change of mind. You've mentioned behavior. Is that all there is to it? Are we good to go now? And, and I, I think I want to say, no, not quite at least two other things are necessary the word of God is necessary you shall know the truth says Jesus and the truth will set you free on one level when I read a long list of demands like it was read to us in Ephesians it's, it's very tiring and, and it's rather depressing you know you shan't do this, you shan't do that you shall do this, you shall do that but look at it the other way up this is the gold standard for a life to the full this is the God standard life to the full. And if he doesn't tell us, you and I can't guess it. It's actually incredibly helpful to have the parameters set out for us. I've hidden your word in my heart, says the psalmist, so I won't sin against you. We need God's word to act as the parameters, the guidelines for our life. As you get older, as you get more senior in your sphere, whether it's in your home life, or whether it's at work, you will find, I'm sure you've discovered already, fewer and fewer people have a temerity to speak into your life correction. They can't do it. God can always do it. Through the Holy Spirit and through scripture, if you'll embrace it and if you'll let him. I read scripture so that God could correct me. All scripture, says Paul, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the servant of God can be thoroughly equipped. Fair game. So we need, we need the word of God. But secondly, God's designed us that we need the help of one another. We need close fellowship. If we're going to be secure in times of shaking, if we're going to live out God's purpose, we will need to be in small groups where we're held accountable. And I want to make a distinction between an accountability group and a friendship group. I'm talking about an accountability group where you reach a level of trust where someone can actually speak into your life and prod you in the right direction and you know they're for you. You know they're not out to get you and so you listen to them and then you help one another go forward. Very often we start with an accountability group, but over a little bit of time, we've, they just become friendship groups. And you know, they're their groups. And each week you say how tough life is, and other people say, oh, they're there." But actually, from time to time, they need to say, wake up. You're behaving like an idiot. I mean, they might put it in a more diplomatic way, but we all need to hear it from time to time. This is, this is the route to God making us people that shine for him, who can disciple others because we're being discipled ourselves well I close with a lovely example the example of John Newton John Newton who penned the hymn Amazing Grace but who at one point in his life was a slave trader and in his old age when he was rector of a church in the city of London he wrote I'm not what I ought to be I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you commission us to be light in this dark world. And we thank you that in coming to you, you offer us a new way of life and the power to live it. Lord, you need the freedom to speak into our lives afresh. And we want that, we want to discover and reconnect with the purpose you have for us. We confess to you, there are times when we've just forgotten this, we've just gone our own way. But we pray we wouldn't just walk out of here and forget. We pray you'd recommission us We come to you to worship you and start all over again. Say, Lord, we belong to you. Have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.